Welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Antithesis Podcast. My name is Chris Peterson, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Josh Whitney. Josh is an executive director and the SciSpace Targets lead for Anthesis. And what I really love about Josh, and in particular why I'm excited about today's conversation, is his ability to really deeply understand the key sustainability trends that we're all experiencing, apply a business lens to them, and ultimately to really help organizations navigate their way through those trends to realize value and ultimately reduce their impact. So Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. There's so much going on within the climate change space, and I'd really love to hear what's standing out to you. Uh, it's, it's been really phenomenal to see the amount of uh, commitments and activity and general momentum on the topic of climate action. Uh, really culminating in the Climate Week in New York City activities at the end of uh, September, uh, organized uh, via the uh, United Nations. So uh, there were a number of significant commitments that came out, most of which uh, were really centered around getting corporates to commit to a one and a half degree Celsius pledge uh, to reduce their emissions aligned to climate science to, to limit the temperature change by one and a half degrees. Running up into the event, there were 28 companies that uh, were sort of the founding members of this additional uh, UN business ambition pledge, which builds on the back of the science-based targets initiative program. Uh, during the event and over the course of that week, an additional 59 companies signed on to the pledge. And I think even more exciting is that the momentum uh, has not stopped since. We've seen another seven companies that have committed over the last two weeks to this one and a half degree pledge. Um, and that builds upon the additional 700 companies that have made their commitments official through the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Um, so all in, there are about now 150 companies who have set their targets for at least scope one and two uh, to be aligned to the one and a half degree trajectory. And I think when we think about the 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 influence this has the numbers are are really exciting uh, and the numbers are are significant but the real knock on effect is the potential and uh, signal that this sends to all of these companies suppliers so because of the nature of the of the target setting framework it requires all of these companies to also engage their suppliers in setting targets and so we'll see this this cascade effect hit thousands of key suppliers, you know, many of whom um, are equally large, multi-million, as well as billion-dollar companies, um, but are really below the radar of a lot of the institutional investors who are driving a lot of pressure and, and action for companies to set targets. One of the other things that came out of the Climate Week uh, would, would be remiss to not mention uh, the activity and media interest and, and real tangible action that uh, Greta Thurn... Turnberg has has had uh, through her incredible speech that she gave on the UN floor, uh, her trip to the uh, uh, events via a carbon neutral uh, sailing vessel from uh, Sweden, uh, and and really the momentum that she's uh, consequently having on the policy, corporate, and individual level. Um, there were two climate strikes that took place on the Fridays that bookended the event. Uh, where millions of people, not only uh, across the U.S., but really across the world, gather together to raise their voices for concern and demand policy action uh, around cl climate change. Uh, and it was really, I think, profound to see 
um, this all take place uh, and being really organized and sort of catalyzed by a 16-year-old. Um, uh, it, it was really Im- impressive. Personally, made, made made me think about the impact that I'm having in my life uh, thus far compared to her. So uh, fairly profound. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It was really inspirational to see it, that amount of momentum around that. And, you know, you talked about reflecting on your own kind of personal impact. You know, how are companies responding to that and all those developments coming out of Climate Week? Yeah. So, so you know, there's there, there has been a lot of action specific to the climate agenda. The thing to not forget, of course, is that there are a lot of things that are connected into the climate agenda. So um, it hasn't really been only specific to carbon emissions and, and, and traditional scope, scope one, two and three focused. Uh, there were dozens of other initiatives that were launched on the back of Climate Week. Uh, and they focused on things like the energy and water nexus, uh, as well as many other initiatives. One uh, that was focused on uh, food waste, which is a program uh, that was just launched called the 10 by 20 by 30 initiative. And that's focused around food retailers and uh, uh, growers and supply chains that are going to be uh, fighting the the food waste uh, loss uh, uh, issue across uh, across their networks. Uh, SDGs is another uh, big buzzword as well as topic. Uh, we saw 17 companies come together, uh, the the likes of which represent over $500 billion in, in revenue, uh, into a new program uh, called the Business Avengers, in the back of the uh, uh, media interest around uh, superheroes, uh, to highlight the crucial role that businesses play in hitting those 17 S- SDGs by, by 2030. Um, they are composed of sort of the usual suspects uh, and leaders in the sustainability arena uh, anchored by Unilever. Uh, another hot topic where some big announcements came is around circular economy and single-use plastics uh, with uh, Hewlett-Packard uh, uh, announcing the launch of a NOPA computer that will be using ocean-bound plastics in some of its components. Uh, and then another uh, big one centered in the heart of, of New York City, of course, is, is, is from the finance world, uh, where over 130 banks got together uh, and launched the Principles for Responsible Banking, uh, which aligns uh, their businesses with the Paris Agreement for at minimum two degrees uh, and, and the SDDGs. And this is building off of a similar program that came out a couple of years ago uh, called the Principles for Responsible Investments. So it's really been, uh, you know, a a number of initiatives, programs across all sectors and across many of the key scopes uh, that climate influence, uh, where we've seen a lot of action. Yeah, amazing to see that much momentum. And maybe are there any themes that stand out for you in terms of how companies are positioning their messaging or thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this one is is both what I've seen being reflected uh, uh, in the market, um, particularly resonating from the message that uh, Greta has, has I think, um, made very, very clear, passionate, and very emotional, uh, as well as myself. And, and, and that's, I think, a shift where this is really an existential human threat. It's, and it's also real. Uh, you know, we've had a number of, of years of physical climate, um, threats and risks, you know, being, being realized through most notably weather. Um, but I think the transition is, is to some extent, um, a, a bit tongue in cheek in that this is no longer about just saving the planet. 
um, the rainforest, uh, even though the Amazon continues to burn, um, you know, or even, you know, polar bears, a kind of poster child for, for climate change. Um, this is really about saving humans. Um, you know, my life, your life, um, and, and really the quality of our life as we know it, right? Um, the planet's going to be relatively on the scale of, um, billions of years. It's going to be fine. You know, it will survive this blip of, uh, climate, uh, change and increases in global temperature. Um, you know, plants and animals will suffer. Um, they'll die off. They'll evolve. Life will continue operating in a different way than it is today, but it's really, you know, our species, uh, and the social and ethical and kind of moral impacts um, that, you know, honestly are selfishly most at risk here. And that I think we are, uh, whether we realize it or not, also trying to preserve. And I think when we humanize this kind of a storyline, uh, we can kind of tug at both this sort of moral high ground of, of doing what is right, but also some aspect of self-preservation. And, you know, there are very few things in this world that are more mobilizing and activating than protecting yourself or your family. And so, um, I think that recognition, uh, in a lot of individuals, as well as, you know, the CEOs out, out there who I think have, have really, uh, come to terms with this reality. It's, it's been profound to see, um, that, you know, that is a big mobilizer. And I think as long as we point it in the right direction, there's potential to really increase the activity in this area. It feels like that's kind of starting to bring out the big guns around this, right? And help to, as you say, hopefully move move the needle around engagement. And maybe kind of building off of that, you know, you know, given where we are, what are or should companies and people be doing, uh, or people within those companies be doing to start to address this or build off of what they've already been doing? Yeah. So you know the. The first um, directional thing is is this very real recognition that uh, the clock is ticking, you know, throughout the climate week events. Um, and I think over the last couple of couple of months, really, the point has been very clearly made that, you know, we have essentially this next decade, 2020 to 2030, to really course correct before, you know, the, dom the domino effect of systems change is, is, is sort of irreversibly set into motion. Um, so that's a little bit doomsday, but, you know, on the back of this self-preservation theory, it's also very, very motivating when combined with sort of personal accountability, um, to making real ambitious commitments to take climate action. And, you know, we're, we're seeing this play out, of course, within the, the area of, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in, in the three kind of classic and focused areas of, Scope one emissions, which cover a company's operational uh, direct emissions. Uh, scope two, which is in the area of indirect emissions from primarily electricity consumption. And then scope three, which is a company's upstream and downstream value chains. And so within the areas uh, where we're seeing the most, the most action and, and I think an evolution of sorts uh, is around scope two where I think we can uh, very gladly and sort of happily say that companies are actually moving beyond scope two. And, and, and to a large extent, the challenge and, and problem of addressing scope two emissions is more or less solved with the purchase of renewable electricity. Uh, the last decade, I think this has really come to, come to scale at a market level from you know, on-site installations to wind farms uh, to 
um, all the different forms that are available on a relative order of magnitude, you know, these are now pretty easy to contract, procure, and account for um, across all all buyers uh, in the marketplace, from individuals putting solar on their home uh, to cities and municipalities installing solar farms uh, to the to the corporates. Uh, and you know, in a in a grand scheme of things, from an energy generation and tech development perspective, it's been pretty fast uh, and also pervasive. Um, we see. Over 200 companies have set renewable energy 100 commitments. Um, many of them have already uh, achieved them. Um, we also see many, many countries making, uh, you know, uh, renewable energy as a, a portion of their portfolio go from single digits to double digits with Germany. I think the last first half of this year, they, they produced just under half of their electricity demand from renewables. Costa Rica, the kind of poster child is, is up to about 98%. Of their energy demand coming from renewables, um, and and many EU countries shifting to a fifty percent target by twenty thirty, and and effectively net zero by twenty fifty. And even in the U.S., there's a uh, yet another piece of legislation that 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 has a, a a target along those similar lines. A couple points on on making it quote easy though um, is is that for for most of the world that is the case now. I think the one area that that we do see uh, continued lag in making this a simple transaction is unfortunately in China, where obviously the demand is uh, significant and the current installed base is 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 mostly coal fired power plants. The reality is is over the next you know I think three three to five years that will slowly changed uh, change rather and and WRI uh, had a really great uh, four part web series that was run through the spring of. This past year, uh, which you can go find the um, uh, uh, posted presentations on, but they did a great job of sort of really going through at a very technical level um, where renewables are in China specifically. Um, with you know, long long story short, being it's complicated, it's costly, and from a legislation perspective, it's going to be slow to come to market. But you know, all that said, um, you know, renewables are addressing the largest pieces of most companies' footprint, enabling them to hit zero. And that's essentially getting them and, and un unlocking them from being focused on the electricity to focus on other portions of their emissions. And that's scope scope one from fleets uh, and stationary fuels and things like, like that. Yeah. And so maybe transitioning to that scope one piece, you know, are there a lot of developments you're seeing there? Absolutely. Yeah. So on the back of the RE100 initiative, um, we have seen this past year, the launch of the EV100 initiative, which is, of course, uh, acronym for electric vehicles. So a um, lot of, lot of uh, uh, movement there in the last uh, six to 18 months. And of course, this is on the back of EVs, um, you know, slowly growing in their penetration rate in terms of uh, consumer Purchases uh, as a as a part of um, the the vehicle fleet in a lot of countries. Um, transportation emissions essentially are now the largest contributor to greenhouse gases, uh, particularly in the in the U.S. And prices are you know coming down for EVs led by innovators like Tesla. Um, and, you know, many more options are are being brought to market, um, not just for um, you know sexy, snazzy, uh, high end hundred thousand dollar vehicles, but also at the low end, uh, and for other parts of the transportation economy. So, so we're seeing public buses 
and um, uh, multi-user transportation options coming to market. There's actually a backlog of these vehicles because the demand is so high, in particular from cities and municipalities wanting to transition their uh, traditional diesel or CNG fleets over to EV, um, as well as to corporates who are who are interested in buying these buses for their employee trans- transportation. Uh, but also 18-wheeler uh, freight and fleets. Um, of course, the the automation of them is is going to be a big shock and change to the system, but that also will lead to a lot more efficiency in, in terms of transport emissions. Uh, and then finally, light light duty trucks, the, the latter of which got a huge bump uh, this past September when Amazon, who has been traditionally pretty quiet uh, and conservative in their climate area, um, made a series of bold commitments uh, aligned to, to science-based targets um, where they'll be purchasing over 100,000 trucks uh, from a relatively new startup called Rivian, uh, of which they own an equity stake in, uh, starting in 2021 to be their prime uh, delivery fleet going into the future. Mm-hmm. And I think really that what this is doing is, is, is giving the rest of the corporates out there who you know traditionally sit on the fence, wait to see some of the um, more progressive and aggressive companies make commitments um, and essentially lower the cost of, of entry. Uh, we're seeing a lot of these folks now get on get on board and uh, make commitments to EVs, and I think there is a, this sort of strength in numbers men- mentality here, where um, we are, I think, at this critical mass point, certainly nearly there, um, uh, to where EVs will be just rapidly adopted, uh, certainly here within the U.S. over the next decade. The yeah. other flip side to that scope one emissions uh, coin is around stationary emissions, right? And and so that's that's going to be, I think, a much longer tail effect in terms of seeing reductions, just sort of realistically uh, based upon the historical um, success rate that we've seen with companies, you know, doing the hard work of energy efficiency, uh, which is by nature fairly in, incremental. I think over the last 20 years, you know, all of the low-hanging fruit has been, has been picked. Um, so I, I don't see a tremendous amount of opportunity at scale in big numbers for um, these emissions to be reduced um, say significantly without a lot of capital put into it. And, and, and so in response to that, I think what we're seeing is uh, a lot of interest and focused around fuels, fuel switching. Um, but again, this is going to be a challenge because particularly here in, here in the U.S. and uh, North America at large, natural gas, which is the, um, essentially the, the primary stationary fuel here, um, it's cheap, right? It's abundant, and it also has a relatively lower emissions intensity than coal, as an example. Um, but there are other couple areas that that you know we're seeing from renewable natural gas to uh, renewable thermal, a initiative that was launched uh, within the last, I think, two years or so uh, uh, from Reba, which is the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, uh, is is now looking at uh, thermal as a, as yet another area that you know needs to be. Um, innovated on, uh, but I think in in general, because of the success of renewables followed by electric vehicles, which of course um, will be tied to uh, renewable electricity as the quote fuel source, the long tail of the remainder of scope one, I think will be where companies put and place some bets into now, but they have some runway, I think, to address the, these emissions while making progress on the other two areas first. The elephant in the room, though, is scope three. 
maybe can you provide some perspective there? Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, it, you know, in in a lot of cases, scope scope three emissions are you know three to three to ten x a company's traditional operational foot footprint, which is obviously large. They also have a challenge of of uh, influence as as well as accounting. But I think what's exciting is you know companies are not letting that get in the way of of making progress. I think there is uh, increasingly a general acknowledgement that in this case what you necessarily can't always perfectly measure, you can still manage. Uh, and that's been, been, been quite exciting. And so on, on the back of, of these science-based target commitments, um, there is a explicit requirement to engage your supply chain. Uh, and so most companies are looking at you know this via two mechanisms. One is around setting absolute targets where they do have good data or they make very specific products that they can uh, uh, look to reduce the material inputs that go into or if they're products that use energy set performance reductions around uh making them more efficient uh with the other area being getting their suppliers to set their own equally am- ambitious targets and so that's looking at leveraging um their own existing procurement and sourcing platforms jumping on the back of other initiatives that might be in in in, in existence today that they're participating in like CDP um, other surveys like Ecovetus or the Responsible Business Alliance uh, for a lot of the tech industry, or developing their own supplier net- networks like uh, many companies have. And it's, essentially, it's going to be hitting the next tier of significantly larger companies um, to step up in and sort of through that door of emissions accounting, reporting, and target setting. Uh, and, and I think this sort of shadow effect of getting all of the next tier of companies to also uh, jump into the target setting arena on climate targets gives us some hope, I think, for uh, achieving what is a very ambitious timeline that we're up against. Well, it's good if you give people some hope within this fairly <laughs> depressing <laughs> topic. So <laughs> appreciate that. Absolutely. And then, are, you know, I mean, taking it up maybe to the 30,000 foot level, are there some big steps that people should be taking as they're evaluating or updating or reassessing their existing program? So I think to look at this uh, effectively for folks, you know, I would, I would kind of split that into two pieces. So, you know, if you're if you're a company that's that's just getting on this path, you know, there is an opportunity, I think, to make a lot of uh, change quickly covering the basics. Uh, so, you know, you want to get a handle on your footprint, understand the connection points between cost and carbon and what those those drivers are and explore options to make reductions um, and and really get yourself some quick wins, uh, most likely by setting near-term targets as opposed to a lot of 10-plus-year targets. So you can demonstrate some quick success and some progress. Um, and you know, ways to do that would be looking at uh, your uh, peers, competitors, as well as customers for some of their best practices. Look to them for guidance and, quite frankly, steal what is working for them because you know they have likely done a lot of hard work, had some successes as well as failures. And, and there's uh, nothing wrong with um, stealing what is working for them because it will likely work for you and save you a lot of time. And the flip side to that is, is you know, if you've already done a lot of work in this area, the two things that we talked about here uh, in some detail are worth revisiting. And that's, you know, one, looking at your energy procurement strategy uh, and really considering what it will take financially as well as operationally to get to RE100. Um, that is really the single largest 
and practically easiest step to making significant progress on reducing your emissions aligned to climate science. And, and um, essentially, the contracting tools and mechanisms uh, and, and market is really there waiting for you to lean in. Uh, there's, there's very little uh, in, in the way there to, to make significant progress. And then the last is, is, of course, around looking at your scope three. And so that's doing things like setting an inventory, identifying your hotspots, connecting that to areas of risk in your supply chain, and exploring how an engagement program can add value beyond just to focus on carbon. Uh, and, and of course, if you make products, look for ways to reduce the impact of those, particularly in their use phase. Fantastic. Thanks, Josh. I Fascinating to get your perspective and the insights about how to move forward. So thank you very much for that, that time and insight. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, maybe just to mention everybody, if they want to reach out to Josh directly, he can be reached at Josh Whitney at anthesisgroup.com. And then there's a dedicated SPT webpage under our advisory and communications page on the Anthesis website. Lots of insights and info there, uh, as well as links to our lessons learned from developing SPT's blog series, which is available off of that page or off of our blog page. But again, lots of really valuable insights. Josh, thank you again for, for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll look forward to talking to you soon.